Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. And I'm Mr. Vosiliatis. This is going to be a series of lectures on our podcast um, to really walk you through in a detailed way uh, all the information that the AP American History curriculum has to offer. It will be approximately 45 minutes per section or part of the series, uh, about roughly the same time you would have you would get from a lecture notes in class. Uh, but like as Mr. Copeland said, that we, we know that there's extenuating circumstances that happen occur throughout the year, so therefore we want to make sure we can use this as a supplement. We want you to come in to our classrooms with some sort of content or background knowledge so we can actually engage in history more fruitfully. The best way to really examine a lot of the critical time periods in our history is really to look at the first-person accounts, the primary sources, the diaries, the letters, and the um, witnesses of what was going on at those moments. So if we can spend more time actually having those deeper conversations about the motivations, the emotions, and all the things that play into all these events, it will be much better for all of us to come to a uh, more complete understanding rather than just simply listing off a chronological series of events. So if you haven't done so already, please take the opportunity pr to print out uh, period 1-1 notes and then feel free to write in extra notes along the side margins. We will be going along with the outline in front of you. All right, here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Period 1-1, a new world of many cultures. We can describe the old world pretty much as a conglomerate of nations within Europe, and in the Middle East during this time. We call it the Old World because if you know anything from global history, most of the early civilizations to the West was started along the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia and it kind of just like, you know, extended far out to the reaches of the British Isles. So because of this, this is a, a label that we often use, particularly Westerners, to indicate some something distinct from the New World, which we will later talk about uh, that refers to the Americas, North and South America. I want to make a point here. Labels are important because they imply a sense of superiority and hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? Old meaning tradition, old meaning foundational, new implying naivete, new implying non-sophistication, right? Yeah. And these are some of the things that we have to be aware about right on the onset. Labeling is important because this is what a lot of the European thinkers are going into when they examine the first peoples in the New World. Yeah, when you when you examine the conflicts and the clashes of the different cultures from the Old World to the inherently New World from their perspective, that basis of judgment from savages versus sophistication and intelligence and a cultured society versus the 
absence of that they perceive in the in the new world and all in throughout Africa and Asia, we see that the major um, thought process, which then can be used to justify other actions. And and you know, like superiority, we we can easily like just judge someone to being oh arrogant. You know, like the the quintessential like quarterback or the quintessential basketball player that knows that they're hot stuff. Um, it's easy to say and label them. You know, they they have a you know a chip on their shoulder. But if you really examine. Uh, the the context as to why they feel that way it kind of kind of lends some light to it so very much like the star athlete players that go around strutting thinking that they're hot stuff there's a reason why Europeans believed that they were superior it wasn't just out of thin air and uh, the the biggest event that kind of happened that coincided with the you know the early interaction with the natives of the new world was also a period known as the Renaissance so yes. it's interesting had we not had you know this period at the same exact time of early exploration, I wonder if we would have some of these, you know, superiority-like-mindedness uh, or ideologies or judgments that are happening and over bef- here. Before we go on, do you have something against athletes? <laughs> uh, the fact that I'm not one? Um, <laughs> no. Other than that, no. All right. So the Renaissance itself is something important to understand, and this movement um, was really focused on the effort to try and recreate or emulate, as it says in the notes, the spirit or ethos of the classical civilizations of the past, of of Athens and of the ancient Greeks. Yeah, think of it like, uh, you know, how there are some fads that are going on that, you know, are retroactive. Like, you know, everyone's all into the 80s now. So there's a tendency for humans to go back to a decade that they view as a time of uh, wonder and a time of awe and achievement. So it is no different than the people in Europe and they look back to the classical civilizations of Greece and Rome and some of the reasons why um, were a few but we broke it down into three major reasons or causes of the Renaissance. The one is the Crusades. The Crusades were a, a series of a, a religious wars between uh, the Christians in Europe and the, and the feudal states in Europe and the uh, Muslim Empire in the Middle East over Jerusalem. Now the wars are not that important. What is important is the results of the wars. Where it go- there's going to be a tremendous amount of cultural diffusion or exchanges that happen. Not only just uh, the exchange of material goods like gold and silk, but there's going to be a resurrection of ancient texts that the Arabs actually kept. So th- the Arabs um, kept a lot of the ancient Greek and Roman, um, you know, philosophies and-, and mathematical designs and engineering designs and blueprints. And some of that will be then reintroduced into Europe, and that's going to kind of re-spark or inspire a lot of thinkers in Europe to kind of go back to how the Greeks or the Romans looked at world problems. Yeah, the um, conversations, the ideas uh, that were spurred on by this this effort of the Crusades were really just the interaction of human beings, you know, so the, the way in which we sp- spur that on into combining that with the commercial revolution. You know, we have the engagement of trade and that along with the cultural diffusion of the warring time period of the Crusades, we have the engagement where everyone is needing to profit from one uh, with one another, so engaging in conversations with that person, learning from their culture, seeing what their needs are based on your own. That, that diffusion of cultures is important to really set off the... Um, 
you know, basis from which the Renaissance was created out of. New robust financial systems are developing, particularly in Italy. As you probably recall, the Medici family becomes one of the earliest banking clans that are, are, are going to be seen in, uh, you know, Europe. And it's not to say that we have never had banking systems, but this is becoming so prolific and powerful that areas and kingdoms that were historically just self-sustaining based on crops are now going to have heavy amounts of gold and silver which would facilitate the, the funding of um, v ventures, both economic, political, and social. And, that, and then the final factor has to do with the Black Death, right? So one of the most devastating plagues that we've ever seen on this planet, um, millions and millions of people are brought down, and there's an examination of how we are um, really interacting with one another, thought processes of... of what is healthy and what isn't, how do we avoid something like this. So there's an, a look towards science after uh, the Black Death as a, if we can figure out how this occurred, we can hopefully prevent something from this happening again. And that's really those three things put together create the Renaissance environment that allows the Renaissance to occur. And, and that's why one of the things we move away from is an emphasis on the power of the church emphasis on the masses waiting for God to intervene in their lives personally because they saw the devastation of the Black Death and there starts to be more of a focus on this effort of humanism and the goal is how can we find to the greatest extent what human potential is capable of and a move towards that away from the reliance on faith and God interceding on their behalf. Now, this has to be very clear. Um, we're not suggesting that the people of the Renaissance were like secular atheists. We're like way, 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 way too early for that. However, um, they had a very strong belief in God. They just wanted to utilize reason as a means to solve world problems as they saw it as opposed to waiting on the divine will of God. So these are still followers, these are still believers, and, and in fact many of their achievements were made for God, to, um, God to, yes. to, to the glory of God. So we are not suggesting many of these people are necessarily atheists, but now they're starting to utilize their reasons in ways that were that were most notably found in ancient Greek and Roman uh, societies. So this is going to kind of uh, result in the proliferation of new forms of technology, new ways of political engagement, economic systems, as well as culture. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the changes of technology that make such an important um, impact on this time period. So first off, you mentioned all the ventures that are going to be funded by these new right. uh, affluent communities and, and, or, and um, civilizations. But had they wanted to do this 200, 300 years prior to this, they wouldn't have had the capabilities. One of the most important things is the academic and geographical exploration that happens during this time is the tools that they needed and were required to make these trips. So, for instance, the different models of ships, right, the Carrick, the Galleon, Galleon and the Caravel, these are ships that allowed for travel, allowed for exploration in a much more efficient manner than ha would have been possible just 200 years prior. The Caravel in particular was a small sleeker design in which it could cut through winds, uh, specifically the winds along Cape Hope of Africa. And one nation in particular, Portugal, was able to utilize this technology to circumnavigate around the continent of Africa, of course, in search for access to Chinese markets. So these are the reasons. And also, it's small enough to kind of access through rivers. 
one in which you can utilize for the Amazon River later on when we discover the New World. You know, and even as simple things as the instruments in which they use to navigate. So you have the sextant, sailing compass, modified telescope, you know, the ability to navigate using um, the stars, the celestial um, constellations, excuse me. And, you know, the sextant is something that you can measure where you are based on the North Star and other constellations. And being able to navigate in the dark of night, you know, you're not using your GPS from Google Maps. Right. Um, the ability for you to trust that you're going on the, direct uh, the correct direction rather than just going out with blind faith. You know, so these technological advancements play a crucial role in opening up the quote-unquote new world to Europe, where prior to this it had been sectioned off. And again, think about the impact that this type of technology has on the confidence level of the people in Europe. It'd be like, you know, we, we, we kind of uh, pat, you know, Elon Musk on the back for, for funding a private voyage to Mars. Think about the amount of confidence we have in human potential now. And imagine if we went to Mars and we met humanoid species that can, you know, barely hold, uh, a, 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 you know, a settlement together or put some sort of structure or that we deem or we determine as civilized structure. It's just natural to assume that these people are inferior when in fact that they're not. So I need you to keep this in mind that the confidence level that we have today is very similar to the confidence level that the many shared back in the 14 and 1500s. We're the ones that found them. They right. didn't find us. Exactly. We're the, we're the explorers. And we're the ones we who created these technology. We're bringing our cultures to them you to know, enlighten them. Wind is something that was always nature, Mother Nature's barrier, and we've conquered it. Harnessing we've we've it. conquered it, yeah. right? This is the same thing as us going past the stratosphere of our planet. Like, we are conquering things to which the natural world limited us before, and this is what kind of uh, feeds into our egos. Another thing that really kind of leads to the proliferation of exploration is the development of nation states. Now, this is very important because you would not have nation states unless you had the destruction of feudalism. As you recall, feudalism is a system in which uh, power is distributed based on land and property. So there's a series of small kingdoms scattered throughout Europe. There's no such thing as France or England at this time or Spain or Portugal or Italy. It's all city-states and they're all based on hereditary or in some cases just pure, you know, descendants of warriors dating back to the, you know, the 900s or the 700s, 600s. Because of the Crusades, it's going to unify a lot of these clans and kingdoms what you might like see or think about when you watch Game of Thrones into one unified like identity. The word identity is insurmountable or inseparable from the, the term nation. And because of this and the decline of the church power, you're going to have these kingdoms unify, kind of like a bunch of cells unifying into one giant cell as we call a nation state. Um, a few just to give you an example in France, this quickly happened. He was the earliest monarch to do this, King Louis. Uh, the uh, the 11th from 1423 to 1483 will do this and he will kind of unite all of the, the scattered kingdoms along that area. Spain with Queen Isabella and the marriage of King Ferdinand II of Aragon in 1451 and 1504, they will unite Spain under one flag. And of course, England would follow later in 1457 to 1509, Henry VII will unite all of the clans and kingdoms of England. So the reason why we talk about this is now things can happen a 
lot faster, a lot more powerful. Nations are doubling, uh, the populations are doubling, the currency is doubling. Everything is basically getting bigger, faster, uh, more efficient. And this is going to be the means in which we can start to fund massive explorations that we couldn't have done centuries before. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's crucial is with these emergence of uh, the nation states, these new organisms as you described them as, as all these cells come together, the increased competition is crucial because all of a sudden there's an us versus them nationalism that starts to develop. Where, as you said, there's an identity for these people, a common culture, a common ethnicity that often unites them, whether it be the Spanish, the French, or the English. And so they have one grouping of people they view themselves as one, and now it's up to them to compete against others for their possessions, for their prestige, and for um, power within uh, Europe. So this emergence of the geopolitics, based on their geography, how things are going to play out in conquering different regions, but these developing nation-states all encourage the, late, the change in e economics that we find in the next section. You should also note that not everyone or everybody in Europe is forming nation states. There are other multi-ethnic empires that still exist, and they will continue to exist roughly all the way till World War One, folks, in 1919. We have Russia, which is a multi-ethnic empire. It is a mosaic of scattered different ethnicities, kind of strung up or kind of cohe co you know, tied together by an autocratic ruler, the Ottoman Empire, and the Holy Roman which an Empire, which will later be broken down to the Austrian Empire. So there are some, uh, you know, regions in Europe that are going to be multi-ethnic, but it will be nation states that will be able to uh, explore the new world at a, uh, you know, vivaciousness, at a ferocity that is unprecedented in United States history. Um, that brings us to the changing of the economies, right? And so as feudalism dies out, one of the important things is to see the way these national economies need to emerge. Feudalism works on a smaller scale. It's not going to work on these larger nations that are developing. So one of the key things is it's all about obtaining materials, right? Trade becomes the new economy, not obtaining land. Land is not the goal anymore. Okay, so property ownership was the most important thing. Now it's all about who can obtain as uh, the raw materials for trade. Okay, so most important commodities at this moment, gold, silver, spices, silk, all right? The uh, Silk Road, this, the um, spice trade in, in uh, India and beyond. Uh, Asia plays a major role, and that's why travel to and from there became such an important m m part of exploration. Okay, so what ends up being developed is this new, new system we call mercantilism. All right. And so this economy is strictly based on the belief that it is better for a nation state to export more goods than they are importing. And what that does is just establishes that you are selling more than you're buying. So you're going to have a positive trade ratio and the amount of gold that you have is a direct correlation to your economic prosperity. And that concept is known as bullionism. All right. So that's why, um, you know, the need for trade routes the need for ex exploration is simply based on the fact that these new nations are now competing and they want to prove that their culture is superior to their neighboring cultures. They want to pr prove that France or England is superior to Spain. Right? And so this is what brings us into global trades with Africa, India, China. And these new routes are crucial to the development of these cultures. Yeah, and uh, another reason why we kind of had to find other ways to access uh, Eastern markets was in 1453, the Ottoman Empire starts conquering what will later be called Istanbul, which is the con you know, Constantinople. It's the crossroads between Europe and the Middle East. You would have to pay a toll. Yeah. 
And because of that, you would have to find other ways to do it because a lot of Europeans didn't want to pay the extra fee to go back and forth to this. Uh, so like we said before, the Portuguese explorers will explore along the east coast of Africa to India and China. Uh, 1498, Vasco da Gama will become the first European to reach India by this route. All right, and that brings us to the new slave trade, okay? So one of the critical elements of the slave trade emerging here in the 15th century is the way in which the Portuguese shifted slavery from being circumstance to inherently based on your race and who you are as a human being, and therefore your perceived inferiority, okay? So slavery has been around since ancient times. Europe, Africa, Asia all had enslaved people that have been captured during war. But one of the key things here is it was, it was much more temporary, Okay, so no longer is it something that you are born into and you're that for your entire life. This is something that is a situation where people could buy their way out of it, political circumstances would change, warring tribes would settle, and then their prisoners could be released. And it was a temporary situation that people found themselves in, not something that they were because they were inherently less than. So let's uh, shift gears and also talk about how culture um, changed um, it during the Renaissance. And it's, again, centered on the concept of humanism, as we talked about. And humanism, the, 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 the emphasis of human potential, kind of gives rise to certain characteristics, such, such as ambition, pragmatism, and optimism. And there are going to be some individuals that will um, kind of embody these principles or these characteristics. And then they themselves, through their achievements, will challenge traditional normal uh, norms and customs. So we know about da Vinci Michelangelo. They're going to make challenges to art and architecture, which will be celebrated and even appreciated even up to, to current society. Then there's William Shakespeare. He's going to make a lot of uh, challenges and changes to literature that we still enjoy in English class. Um, the one individual that we will talk about in the context of our history class will be a man named Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk. And he's going to make a significant change and challenge uh, concepts of Christian, uh, Christianity and theology. He will examine a lot of issues within the Catholic Church during the time um, and will state his problems or his ideas um, in the famous 95 Theses. Um, these theses or these ideas will eventually kind of um, lead to a larger revolutionary movement known as the Protestant Reformation. So. Um, the people that kind of followed Luther, known as Lutherans, will basically start to form their own sect or branch of Christianity. And the difference between Protestant or Lutheranism and uh, traditional Catholicism during the time are centered on Luther's three affirmations, sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura. Sola fide in Latin means faith alone. So, you know, he believed that the only way for Christians to be redeemed is to have faith alone. Sola gratia is a of course, to have grace alone, this is something that you uh, get and receive by God as if it were a gift. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no such thing as works or things that you can do, such as indulgences as a reaction to some of the things that the Catholic Church were kind of selling during this time. It's through grace alone. And finally, the most important, I think, for this, this class is the concept called sola scriptura, which means through scripture alone. And he really believed, and this is the revolutionary idea of Luther, he believed that you and your own reading of the Bible, no intercession of the priest or clergy or bishop or hierarchy of the church can really understand and have a relationship with God. And it's through the, the literal uh, reading of the text. And, you know, to some, 
you could understand how this is uh, this kind of coalesces with the scholarly tradition of the Renaissance, but this is kind of revolutionary because this implicitly, you know, kind of challenges the hierarchy. It's subversive. It's, it's a very threat, subversive, especially to the Roman Catholic Church. They, they've always been the arbiters of who gets into heaven and who doesn't. They're putting it up for auction, as you mentioned, with the um, indulgences, right? So he is exposing them for their corruption. He is frustrated with the, the, the way in which this institution of the church has let down the people of, uh, the, of the followers of Christ. And that's what really motivates him above all else, is that he believed these are the things that are the most important, and the church has gotten in the way. So when he speaks up, this is something that many people— take his argument and run with it and say, this makes perfect sense. There's no reason why this church should be in our way. And the church views this as an incredibly um, dangerous topic. Now, some people are going to be Protestants because they truly believe in the theological message that Luther is saying, and they really want to have a very personalized relationship with God. But others are going to use this as a justification for breaking away from the yoke of the Catholic Church because at the time the church also expected taxes or tithes of their own. So, yes. so this was, was a very convenient, convenient yeah, way. It's a convenient situation it. for some politicians and leaders in neighboring right. countries to say, "Oh yes, we completely agree with Luther. This is un- unbelievable what the Roman Catholic Church is doing. Let's use this as an op- they were opportunists and use it as justification for their breaking away." So a lot of the leaders in England uh, Netherlands Netherlands and the Ger- and Germany will be uh, most likely Protestant, where a lot of leaders in, the, in France, Spain, and Portugal, and in Italy will uh, kind of remain Catholic. So we start to see like an ideological divide along the continent, and this will have uh, ramifications not only for our exploration, but also in European politics as well. And I mean, if you think about it from the beginning of uh, Christianity, you know, evangelicals uh, or evangelizing itself is just spreading the news, spreading the gospel. Uh, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. However, they have the issue where he is making the clear point that we've gotten away from that. This this church is now standing in the way of people's uh, salvation, whereas they should be only the route to which they facilitate people achieving that salvation. So um, the disappointment with the Roman Catholic Church is what led him to um, voice these opinions and it was an incredibly brave and courageous thing to do, to be honest, uh, to speak out against what you saw as a perceived uh, injustice. So now as an attempt to lick the wounds, so to speak, of the Catholic Church, they're going to really look at some of the natives that they're going to see in the New World as an opportunity to convert them, and with such fervor and intensity, very much kind of like how we will see later on with the ideological conflict between capitalism and communism in Mm. the 20th century. So if there's this idea of spreading ideologies for the sake of maintaining power, uh, uh, if not in Europe, maybe in the New World. And this is where we start to see the mass evangelization that happens when Christopher Columbus uh, discovers the New World. So the Protestant Reformation had more than just an effect on the Catholic Church in England, but really it was um, destabilizing their power throughout Europe. Right? We have the threat in the East from the uh, Ottoman Empire and Muslims spreading to Europe and uh, Islam. And one of the things that is occurring with the Protestant Reformation is that combined threat puts a situation where the Catholic Spanish are um, led by Isabella and Ferdinand. They're digging their heels in to really focus on who is one of us and who are that, who are the outsiders. So this concept that we're going to talk about throughout the year of nativism is who is a native of our home country, our nationalistic identity, who represents a Spaniard. 
all of a sudden that starts to get personified based on race. All of a sudden that gets to, to be uh, the ideology is combined with Christianity, specifically Catholicism, and you must be Catholic, you must be uh, a white European in order to be a true Spaniard. For Spain, France, and Italy. But oh, yeah, the same sure. will apply uh, for the Protestants in England, Germany, and the Netherlands. Exactly. So the, the justification of who you are and whether or not you're with us or not um, sets up the stage for, as you mentioned, the competition over these people, of, of this new world, and trying to create this environment where we can have as many converts as possible because you're competing over who has the true power and who is the rightful uh, religion within the new world. Okay, And, you know, this type of, I guess, the victory over this, the Muslims, being able to push the Moors out of Spain, played a crucial role in the solidifying of the Catholic identity for the Spaniards during the 1400s. And that leads us to their need to branch out and compete on the world stage into the New World and led to this d discovery of the New World with Columbus. So the New World, uh, in contrast to the Old World, is, you know, the North America, South America, basically the Western Hemisphere of our nation. And as we mentioned before, New World implies a lot of, like, subtle, like, inferior, you know, inf inferiority. Naivety, uh, you know, let, not as sophisticated. It's not as sophisticated as the old world, not as foundational. Um, and it's not a difference of intellect. It's simply a difference of culture and experience. Part of right. the lack of the cultural diffusion right. from uh, the Renaissance that we talked about and the precursors to the Renaissance is what sets up the differences. What is interesting, however, exploration of this new world and settlement was, you know, happened way, 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 way before Christopher Columbus, so about 10,000 years ago. Um, and some archaeologists have, you know, estimated that the first people to settle North America originally kind of arrived 40,000 years ago, probably mm -hmm. from the Asian continent. How is this possible? Well, some have claimed that you know, a lot of these nomads traveled across an ice bridge known as along the Bering Strait uh, during one of the ice ages. Um, the, uh, you know, a lot of these people that are going down to North America, they start to kind of migrate down south, and the first uh, Americans are going to kind of quickly scatter throughout diverse environments throughout uh, both continents and you're going to have several different tribes as a result so it kind of formed as one and as they're traveling from you know the land bridge at the Bering Strait they kind of you know filter all the fracture way down off, fracture yeah. off into their own respective identities and this is important because we're, you're not seeing a unified series of tribes in North America however in Central and South America you're going to have large empires in contrast to North America yeah, so obviously in uh, world history, we under, we studying these, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas, the three major developments of civilizations in the Central and South America. And they have incredible contributions to uh, even time today. But one of the things that the Aztecs are most known for is Tenochtitlan, which is the 200,000 people, the population density, some as large as the cities, largest in all the cities in Europe, um, and the Inca are familiar, excuse me, most well known for their infrastructure, trade, the calendars, and their methods of sustainable farming with the terrace farming in their high altitudes. We want to say this and make you note this because this kind of debunks the myth that Europeans had that they are not as culturally as uh, sophisticated as they were. So you have to identify this. This is a lie. Um, that many of the histories have kind of continued on throughout centuries. And we are here to tell you that they did have very robust, complicated political, social, and economic systems. So just keep that in mind. 
Yeah, and and the cultures of North America are slightly different from Central and South America, not quite as organized, um, not nearly as strict social classes and societies surrounding around the city-states like the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Incas, but uh, the natives that were um, present all throughout North America were seemingly, therefore, less sophisticated by the um, the explorers arriving there. And it's largely because of the fact that um, they spread off into many different cultures, and the Native Americans uh, all throughout the North American continent, there were approximately small tribes of about 300 people for most of the 15th century, much smaller communities, nomads traveling with the herds of the bison and the buffalo. That w The necessity for them was survival, and therefore often what accompanied that was being able to quickly travel was the best means of survival for them. And you have to understand that this kind of looks, um, you know, weak when you have Europeans now really heavily participating in capitalism and mercantilism and mass production and getting that surplus goods, right? Where's your banking system? Where's your banking yeah. system? Where, 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 where's your gold? And a lot of these natives... There was, there was no reason to that. Their economic system wasn't based on massive trade. It was based on just, you know, common, very very well, not, minor trade or trade bartering. For, yeah, not trade for profit, but trade for bartering. It's like, I have something you need, you have something I need, we exchange, we move on. And here's the irony. Europeans practiced this very same economic, you know, system in feudalism. Feudalism didn't have a large, you know, swaths of trade that's happening. So the, the Europeans were themselves practicing this, and they kind of forgot in the era of the Renaissance, in the puffing up of the Renaissance, that they themselves, as a society in general, really kind of participated in very similar activities. Europeans taking their values and applying them to the natives, and therefore misinterpreting their difference for weakness. Now, the linguistic diversity among the tribes in North America is going to be another reason why it's going to be easy for Europeans to dominate over them. English and Spanish and other European language are going to derive from one language family, and there's going to be some basis in root words. I'm sure some of you who are bilingual or <laughs> taking Spanish or French can understand that there are some words that are have in common. However, the American uh, Amerindian languages will derive about 20 language families with more than 400 distinct languages. This is going to be very hard for any of them um, to unite um, because of this. So it's very easy to pit them um, up against each other. And that's what the English and the French in particular are going to do up in North America, as well as what the uh, Spain Spaniards are going to do in South America. Yeah, and I mean, the diversity and the differences amongst these tribes is one of the major factors why Europeans were able to conquer them. So uh, we have to look at the different types of settlements as well. So the Southwest, you know, climates, you know, if you're looking at the difference in climates between England, France, Germany, Spain, there are some differences, but for the most part, they're generally from the same region. North America, much uh, larger, vast amount of territory. The southwestern settlements are in New Mexico and modern-day New Mexico and Arizona, completely different than the northeast and the northwest, the Great Plains. All across the country, there are differing versions of similar um, survival tactics. So we start with the Pueblo tribes in the southwest, forming much of their uh, farming and irrigation systems. Incredibly impressive, but they're having to right. live in caves and cliffs and multi-story buildings because of the heat in order to survive and stay out of uh, the direct sunlight. Clay and um, 
you know, clay homes that they are creating are something that in the Northeast are completely absent. All right, the Northwest, much more of permanent longhouses. They're not the nomads that were present in the Great Plains with the hunting for buffalo that we mentioned earlier, where they're, they're nomads simply with the teepees and the ability to move quickly is a necessity for their survival. All right, so they're f primarily focused on in the Northwest, hunting, fishing, gathering, and because they had more permanent settlements, they're able to really express their history and culture by utilizing um, these wooden structures known as totem poles, all right? So the mountain ranges are isolating them from the re remainder of the Great Plains and other um, civilizations throughout North America. So for the Midwest settlements, uh, these Amerindians in particular are going to settle along the eastern Mississippi River and the Ohio River Valley. These are two key natural features that you should make note of because they will be a very, very important strategic interest for the French as well as the English in the French and Indian War. The Adena Hopewell culture, centered in Ohio, was famous for their large earthen mounds. It created some as long and as large as 300 feet long. The Cahokia uh, was one of the famous settlements in the Midwest. Uh, this is going to be... This is going to be found in Illinois, and it will hold as many as 30,000 inhabitants. So this is the exception to the rule that we were telling you before, that some tribes are going to be as small as 300. There are some areas and pockets within North America that there have been some archaeological evidence to suggest that they're larger than that. And finally, we talk about the Northeast settlements, where American Indian tribes are migrating all the way to New York, where we are here uh, right now. You know, And they're interesting tribes in the fact that they are also focused on hunting and farming, but they're forced to constantly move because the soil here in New York, especially in upstate, is not uh, able to sustain farming of a long uh, duration. So it exhausts the soil very quickly, and they're needed to move in order to sustain themselves. So one of the most famous groups of the American Indians are the Iroquois. And what they're most famous for is the Iroquois Confederation, which is a group of five tribes, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, and the Mohawk. And they all live in uh, upstate New York, and they're five independent tribes, five different um, different cultures, different understandings of uh, languages. However, with presented with the threat of European uh, exploration, they decide to band together. And it's one of the first examples of a confederation or a government in our um, North American continent. All right. Um, these tribes also have to be matriarchal in the fact that they're living in long houses, multiple families, and everyone can pretty much trace their family back to a mother or grandmother at the top of the um, food, excuse me, food chain, <laughs> at the top of the uh genealogical tree and um, from the 1500s all the way to 1770s the Iroquois were an incredibly powerful and influential force in this region that played a role even during our revolution so please keep in mind and really we're going to emphasize the Iroquois um, as we go along with how the Puritans start to kind of make settlements around the northern regions so please keep that in mind and finally the Atlantic seaboard settlements these Amerindians will settle along the coast of New Jersey all the way down to the coast to South uh, Florida uh, many of them are going to be descendants of the woodland mound builders that we mentioned before in the Midwest and they will build and um, create timber and bark lodgings along the river so this is going to be the amount of uh, these are going to be the tribes that a lot of the southern settlers or English colonists will start to interact with when we get to it um, and that concludes period 1-1 of the lecture notes yeah we'll come back when we'll talk about the worlds collide in part two of period one um, we hope you found this helpful uh, to better understand the 
material that we're going through here in the beginning of our curriculum. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care.